Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline, Episode B-17, The Valley. The Parthian invasion of Rome went off as planned. Three thousand horsemen rode unchallenged through the city gates, led by a constellation of eastern nobles. In the vanguard rode the striking figure of Tiridates, brother of both King Vologases of Parthia and King Pacorus of Media Atropatine. Described by Cassius Dio as a young and handsome prince in the prime of his life, Tiridates entered the city in a Roman chariot, a gift from his host, the Emperor Nero. To enhance his dignity, Tiridates was allowed to retain his sword, though anyone looking closely would see it tied firmly into its sheath. Nero trusted Tiridates, but, well, let's not get crazy. After all, the previous year had seen the major conspiracy of Gaius Calpurnius Piso, grandson of the Syrian governor who'd allegedly poisoned Germanicus. Upset with the emperor's despotic rule, Piso conspired with both the Senate and the Praetorians to have Nero assassinated, with the goal of putting himself on the throne. In the spring of 65 AD, the plot was leaked, and Nero ordered the conspirators to commit suicide. Though the crisis had been averted, it had put the emperor on notice that powerful Romans were bent on overthrowing him. Which was at least one reason for the vast public spectacle commemorating the arrival of Tiridates. The prince had made a leisurely affair of the journey from Parthia to Rome. Riding on horseback across Thrace, Illyria, and northeastern Italy, accompanied by his wife, children, and other family members. In preparation, the capital had been festooned with flags, flowers, and burning torches, and all the major monuments were illuminated at night. Of course, the centerpiece of Nero's Rome was still under construction. The massive golden palace covering the Palatine, Esquiline, and Celian hills. Built of brick and concrete overlaid with gold leaf, the palace held some 300 rooms, each covered in brilliant white marble or elaborate frescoes. Also under construction was a huge bronze statue of the emperor, some 30 meters high, made by the Greek sculptor Xenodorus. The emperor Vespasian would later add a sunray crown and dedicate the statue to the Roman sun god Sol. 
In 128 AD, Hadrian had the Colossus moved to a new spot near the Flavian Amphitheater, effectively giving the Colosseum its name. Tiridates's coronation was held in the Forum the day after his arrival. The 28-year-old Nero arrived in full triumphal regalia, accompanied by a large group of Roman dignitaries and soldiers, and took his seat on the imperial throne. Tiridates then approached him between two lines of legionaries. At the foot of the dais, Tiridates knelt down with his hands clutched to his breast. The huge crowd exploded into cheers and applause, and Tiridates waited for silence to speak. My lord, I am a descendant of Arsaces and the brother of the kings Vologases and Pacorus. I have come to you who are my god. I have worshipped you as the sun. I shall be whatever you would order me to be because you are my destiny and fortune." To which Nero replied, You have done well by coming here to enjoy my presence in person. What your father has not left to you, and what your brothers did not preserve for you, I do accord to you, and I make you king of Armenia, so that you, as well as they, may know that I have the power to take away and to grant kingdoms." Tiridates then mounted the dais and knelt, and Nero placed the diadem on his head. As Tigranes stood and prepared to bow a second time, Nero took his hand, kissed him, and seated him at his side, on a chair just a little lower than his own. Unsurprisingly, the crowd once again burst into cheers and applause. And even this was only the beginning. For days following, celebration piled on celebration, with Nero, the lover of public performance, always at the center of the action. Whether personally competing in a chariot race or playing the lyre at evening banquets, Nero hammed it up nonstop, hoping to increase his popularity among his people. It was the largest such reception ever held in the capital, and the Senate joined in by awarding Nero the title of Imperator. Tiridates, while polite, was apparently put off by the emperor's undignified behavior, and went out of his way to praise the stern and Spartan Corbulo. Before Tiridates left Rome for his new kingdom, Nero presided over one final ceremony— for the first time since the Augustan era, the doors of the Temple of Janus were closed, signifying the return of universal peace, or at least the Roman variant. Riding out of the city, Tiridates took with him a veritable army of skilled artisans to complete the reconstruction of the Armenian capital of Artaxata. As a final honor to his host, Tiridates told the emperor that the rebuilt capital would be called Neronia. The optics of the whole event, especially Tiridates kneeling before Nero's throne, were pretty ideal and had done quite a bit to improve the emperor's standing. In fact, though no one could have known it at the time, the peace with Parthia would endure for decades. 
But to the politically savvy, it was hard to ignore the fact that the lion's share of the Near East, Parthia, Armenia, and Media Atropatine, were now jointly controlled by a single family of three brothers, all bent on turning away from Western traditions and toward a glorious Persian past. While the peace would soon pay dividends in Roman military affairs, it was equally appreciated in Parthia. Having firmed up his western flank, the Parthian king of kings Vologases could return his attention to troubling developments in the east. As far back as the reign of Phraates IV, the Parthian king who'd crushed Mark Antony's invasion, the empire faced erosion along its southeastern frontier. First was the rebellion of Indo-Parthian vassals, who carved out a minor kingdom in parts of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and northwestern India. At the same time to the north, an even greater power had taken shape. A coalition of five Indo-European tribes had conquered the former territories of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom, centered on the Oxus River. The tribes were collectively known as the Ueshi, meaning Moon Clan. Over the past two decades, the tribes had expanded south to conquer the breakaway Indo-Parthian kingdom, thereby making themselves into a major Central Asian power. The budding empire took its name from the main Ueshi tribe, the Guishuang, and was known to the west as the Kushan Empire. The new empire was an amalgam of eastern and western traditions. The first Kushan emperor, Kujula Cadphyses, minted coins with both Hellenistic and Buddhist themes. One showed Heracles on one side, while proclaiming Kujula a follower of the Dharma on the other. For their script, the Kushans adopted a local variant of Greek, with a new letter to represent the SH sound in Kushan. In religion, the Kushans were mainly Zoroastrian, but also included Greek, Buddhist, and Hindu elements. Their coins feature no fewer than 30 different gods, a melding of the pantheons of Iran, Greece, and India. Apart from their role as a cultural blender, the Kushans derived great wealth from the Silk Road, where Chinese silk was traded for a variety of Western goods. As a byproduct, they'd also facilitate the introduction of Buddhism from India to China. The growing power of the Kushan Empire was closely monitored by Vologases. While the Parthian Empire had never been stronger, Vologases also knew that two of his ancestors, the Parthian kings Phraates II and Artabanus II, had both died fighting the Yueshi nearly 200 years before. But this being 66 AD, let's stop ignoring the elephant in the room. Everyone in the region was painfully aware that the situation in Judea was spiraling out of control. In Emesa, Sohamus and Drusilla kept tabs on affairs through a royal relative named Noaris. Their kinsman was highly placed in the court of King Herod Agrippa II, and his reports gave them little reason for optimism. Like his predecessor, Felix had finally lost his job over widespread regional unrest, in his case between Syrians and Jews. 
His replacement, Porcius Festus, arrived in 59 AD and was greeted by a fresh wave of Sicarii attacks. Of course, to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, and Festus responded to the violence with overwhelming military force. Unfortunately, this tactic only worked when the zealots gathered in groups, usually under the spell of some false prophet, so the practical effect was minimal. And then, in 61 AD, Festus died. His replacement, Lucius Albinus, didn't even make it to Judea before being forced to deal with a major situation. In the brief power vacuum between procurators, the new Jewish high priest had summoned a group of judges and had James, the brother of Jesus, stoned to death. The high priest in question, another son of Ananus, this time named Ananus, had condemned the Christian patriarch for breaking Jewish law. But of course, James the Just had been universally respected, and the backlash by Jerusalem's Jews was immediate and intense. Both Albinus, still in Egypt, and Agrippa up in his tetrarchy quickly agreed that Ananus had to go, and replaced him with another man named Jesus, son of Damnaeus. Albinus wasn't any more of an outside-the-box thinker than Felix or Festus, and military repression continued to be the order of the day. The Sicarii, on the other hand, were masters of innovation, and they soon tried the new tactic of kidnapping one of Ananus's sons, Eliezer, and offering to exchange him for ten Sicarii prisoners. Now, in a vacuum, there's no way Albinus would have gone for the deal. But it just so happened that Ananus, the power broker of the high priest clan, had already bribed his way into Albinus's good graces. To save his son's life, Ananus convinced the procurator to make the deal. What happened next? You can probably guess. Since the trial run had been so successful, the Sicarii began serial kidnappings of Ananus's family members and servants. Before long, they had most of their compatriots back out on the streets. This, to put it mildly, was not a promising development. It also didn't help that, while the common people were suffering and starving, King Herod Agrippa II decided to supersize his palace at Caesarea Philippi and rename it Neronlas in honor of the emperor. In the process, he also raided his entire tetrarchy for artistic treasures to adorn his capital. Even as new monuments were being erected, civic order was breaking down. In Jerusalem, there were street fights between gangs supporting rival high priests and nobles with royal ties committing crimes with near impunity. And then, well, things got worse. Learning he was about to be replaced as procurator, Albinus decided to empty out the prisons, killing those he believed worthy of death, but freeing everyone else. Unsurprisingly, this did not make for a safer and more harmonious Judea. And I'm sure it was around this time that someone somewhere said, well, at least it can't get much worse. And then, right on cue, Gessius Florus arrived. 
To quote the historian Josephus, this Florus was so wicked and so violent in the use of his authority that the Jews took Albinus to have been their benefactor. And again, it was this Florus who necessitated us to take up arms against the Romans, since we thought it better to be destroyed all at once rather than little by little. Florus was apparently a real piece of work. Under his rule, Judea basically descended into a state of criminal anarchy, with many Jews fleeing the region in search of safer lives abroad. As just one example, Florus sent legionaries to break into the treasury of the Jewish temple and steal 17 talents for a fictitious Roman tax. When the locals complained, he sent horsemen into the upper city with orders to plunder and slaughter at will. At the same time, in Caesarea, another ethnic conflict erupted, this time between Jews and Greeks, with Florus clearly taking the Greek side. As the theft and murder escalated, dueling letters raced to Antioch, competing for the eyes of the Syrian governor, Cestius Gallus. Gallus had succeeded Corbulo to the post in 63 AD, and it's not clear whether Corbulo still retained overall eastern imperium or had been reassigned by Nero. He was still alive. The whole forced suicide thing was still a bit down the road. Either way, it was Gallus who had to sort through the mixed messages. The letters from Florus blamed the Jews for ongoing violence, while those from Jewish leaders laid the blame squarely on Florus. In the end, Gallus dispatched a military tribune to Jerusalem, with orders to ferret out the truth. When the tribune arrived, he was welcomed by Jewish leaders, who stressed that their quarrel was with Florus, not with Rome. To prove their point, they invited him to walk the city without bodyguards, and see for himself both the people's suffering and their peaceful nature. The tactic worked, and after completing his tour, the tribune commended the Jews for their ongoing fidelity. Encouraged by the interaction, the Jews petitioned Agrippa to send emissaries to Rome and beg for the recall of Florus. As both a king and intimate of the imperial court, Agrippa knew that such a move could easily rebound. But he also knew he couldn't just ignore the people's suffering. So instead, he gathered the citizens of Jerusalem together and gave them the speech of a lifetime. The full text may have been accurately recorded or been paraphrased and elaborated on by Josephus. Either way, it's an amazing speech, and lays out, with irrefutable logic, all the reasons why it was sheer suicide to pick a fight with the Roman Empire. Just to give you the flavor, here are a few choice bits. You are the only people who think it a disgrace to be servants to those to whom all the world is submitted. What sort of army do you rely on? What are the arms you depend on? Where is your fleet to sweep the Roman seas? And where are those treasures which may be sufficient for your undertakings? Are you richer than the Gauls, stronger than the Germans, more numerous than all men upon the habitable earth? What confidence elevates you to oppose the Romans? 
Perhaps it will be said, it is hard to endure slavery. Yes, but how much harder it is to the Greeks, who were esteemed the noblest of all people under the sun. It goes on like this for pages and pages. It's totally comprehensive and completely accurate. And, in the end, it did not one bit of good. Many Jews were on board with Agrippa's logic until he got to the part about enduring Florus until Nero eventually sent a replacement. And then, well, they started throwing rocks at him. Utterly dejected, Agrippa was forced to leave the city and return to his northern tetrarchy. In his mind, he'd done what he could. The rest was in God's hands. Word soon came that a group of zealots, led by Menachem of the Sicarii, had assaulted the fortress at Masada and killed the Roman garrison. At the same time in Jerusalem, Eleazar, the ransom son of Ananus, temple captain and zealot sympathizer, convinced the Jewish priesthood to stop making sacrifices on Rome's behalf. Alarmed at these developments, the leading citizens of Jerusalem requested soldiers from both Florus and Agrippa to suppress the growing revolt. Florus was delighted at the prospect of open warfare and ignored the request, but Agrippa sent 3,000 horsemen to Jerusalem under his general Philip and master of horse Darius. Bolstered by Agrippa's forces, Jewish leaders seized the upper city while the lower city and temple fell under zealot control. For a week, the two sides skirmished without any real engagements. But on the eighth day, a large force of Sicarii and zealots, led by Eleazar, overpowered Agrippa's soldiers and took the upper city. In victory, they set fire to the noble houses and, more critically, to the debt records of the poor. A few of Agrippa's soldiers managed to barricade themselves in the upper palace, but the main holdout was the Roman garrison stationed in the Antonia Fortress, adjacent to the temple. When it was taken two days later, all the legionaries inside were slaughtered. The Sicarii leader Menachem then entered the city and proclaimed himself both king of the Jews and leader of the rebellion. While zealot forces maintained a siege of the upper palace, Menachem briefly returned to Masada, breaking open the armory and distributing weapons to both the Sicarii and other zealot bands. By the time he returned, Agrippa's soldiers had surrendered and were allowed to leave the city unharmed. The Jewish high priest didn't get off so lucky. He was found hiding in an aqueduct and killed. With Jerusalem now firmly under zealot control, Menachem took the opportunity to enter the Jewish temple. The former stronghold of the corrupt priesthood, now liberated by zealot action. The symbolism was somewhat tarnished by the nature of his appearance, dressed in royal garments and encircled by armed bodyguards. To Menachem, it must have seemed like the kingdom of God, heralded in the scriptures and yearned for since the time of his great-grandfather, Hezekiah the bandit chief, was very, very close. Which is just about the time that Eliezer, enraged by the blatant power grab, attacked Menachem with a large zealot mob. 
In the ensuing melee, many of Menachem's followers were killed, while the remainder fled to the Sicarii stronghold of Masada. Menachem himself was caught, tortured, and executed. Yes, my friends, the revolution was already eating its own. After the zealot capture of Jerusalem, the violence increased exponentially. Florus commenced a general slaughter of the Jewish population of Caesarea. In retaliation, Jewish bands attacked Syrian villages, killing the inhabitants and burning them to the ground. Large cities split into Jewish and Syrian factions and began making war on one another. Violent deaths quickly escalated into the tens of thousands. Josephus reports that it was then common to see cities filled with dead bodies still lying unburied, and those of old men mixed with infants. The Judean landscape was becoming a vision of hell, and the war against Rome hadn't even begun. Even Sohamus's relative, Noaris, played his own small part. With Agrippa off in Antioch, Noaris had been delegated to govern the Tetrarchy, which he mainly saw as an opportunity to enrich himself. When a group of wealthy Jews came up from Batanea, requesting a detachment of soldiers to protect them against bandits, Noaris appeared to grant their request. He then sent armed men to their camp at night, slit their throats, and stole all their belongings. When Agrippa found out, he exiled Noaris, but took no other action for fear of angering Sohamus. To the south, in Judea, zealot attacks continued. The Roman citadel at Cyprus, near Jericho, was wiped out by Jewish rebels, and its fortifications demolished. Similarly, the fortress of Machaerus, where John the Baptist had spent his final years, was captured by the zealots after its Roman garrison surrendered. The growing firestorm in Judea sparked conflict in other regions. Alexandria in Egypt was home to the world's largest Jewish community, and birthplace of the Greek Old Testament known as the Septuagint. When violent clashes erupted between Greek and Jewish factions, the Egyptian prefect, Tiberius Julius Alexander, called in three African legions. The soldiers flooded into Alexandria's Jewish quarter, killing everyone they found, plundering their belongings, and setting fire to their homes. At the end of the assault, some 50,000 Jews lay dead. The massacre in Egypt finally prodded the Syrian governor, Cestius Gallus, into action. Following Alexander's example, he'd use overwhelming military force to crush the Judean revolt. From the Syrian legions, he gathered 10,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry. Then the word went out to the local client kings. In Emesa, detailed intelligence on the Judean situation had been lost with the expulsion of Noaris. But it was pretty clear where things were headed when Sohamus and Drusilla got the call. Soon, 1,300 horsemen and 2,700 archers, known as the Hemesani, were marching out in support of Rome. To the north, King Antiochus of Comagene sent 2,000 cavalry, 3,000 infantry, and an equal number of archers. 
The last major contingent came from King Herod Agrippa II. 3,000 infantry and 1,000 horsemen dispatched from his northern tetrarchy. Unlike the other client kings, Agrippa led his own forces. Whether to show loyalty to Rome or mitigate violence against the Jews is unknown. Gallus rallied his forces, now 30,000 strong, at the coastal city of Ptolemais in southern Syria, now Acre in modern Israel. When they crossed the border into Galilee, the real war between Rome and Judea had begun. <laughs> 